Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Scale with Predictable Success, where we get to talk with bright, smart, brilliant people about building sustainable scalability. And one thing that I know is that the environment that is the foundation of sustainable scalability is capitalism. And one of the things that I'm really delighted about is to have today's guest, my dear friend, Carol Roth. As you'll hear in a moment, many of you already know, we've known each other for quite some time, great friend of predictable success. And you will not find a more fervent apostle for capitalism than Carol. Carol, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, Les, and excited to be back with you for, I guess, it's three times a charm now? So three, Pete. And... Um, some of the folks will may recall, you know, we got into deep reminiscence mode last time you were on because I think the two of us met at, at a time that was pretty formative for both of us. We both had our first book coming out. Uh, I had predictable success, and you had the entrepreneur equation, and uh, we sort of gelled at that at that point. Realized we've got a similar worldview, and guess what? You've gone and done it again. This is the bit that I couldn't quite believe. You wrote another book, and not just any old book. This book is The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. Tell us what you really think, Carol. <laughs> yeah, you, you, usually I really hold my tongue on things less. So I'm sure this is very surprising. And I'm pretty sure I swore to you the last time we talked that I wasn't going to yeah, write she another did. book. Um, but certainly the pandemic came around and I was approached as somebody who understood economics and could actually give a deep dive on something that was really historic to write something. And like a complete idiot, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to be out speaking. I'm going to be home for a little bit. So sure. Yeah, why not? That sounds fun. Uh, not really realizing what a Herculean effort it was to follow what was happening real time. And I say real time, you know, somewhat almost in jest because obviously things would happen, but then as time would go on, you'd get reporting that would sort of add context to that. So um, as we've talked about offline, I probably wrote about three and a half different books. I had two additional titles <laughs> that, that made it before this. But as I went through and really tried to connect the dots and say what happened, you know, we were in a situation where people thought, and the takeaway is, oh, well, we had lockdowns and we were all in this together. And I'm here to tell you, we did not. We had the government picking winners and losers. They decided who was essential and who was quote unquote non-essential, who could thrive and who had to fight to survive. And they did this not based on data or science, but based on political clout and connections. And what this enabled was the most historic wealth transfer that we have ever seen in history on multiple levels. And it went from Main Street into Wall Street. So we were not all shut down. Probably about a third of us were shut down. Um, we were not you know, all in this together. And when they had the opportunity to do the right thing and to support the small businesses in the ways that would sort of even the playing field, that's not exactly what happened. So to be able to chronicle that, particularly at a time when media likes to gaslight us 
and rewrite history and we're already seeing it rewritten and the the postmortem, um, which is then turning into a, a new potential round of lockdowns uh, is, is being shifted is that I really wanted to document this because as you said, capitalism is the foundation for economic freedom. Uh, small business is the backbone of the economy. And if we don't understand what's happening, we lose those wealth creation opportunities and those opportunities of economic freedom for everybody. And that would be a, a huge tragedy. And, and as you uh, so wonderfully shown just in that introduction, um, the book is not a gloss. You've really dug deep into uh, the events of the last 18 months, almost two years. Um, and as in my reading in the first half, it's really a pretty searing indictment of how the U.S. government responded to the economic aspects of uh, the pandemic. And, and I want to dig into that in a, in a moment or two. And then in, in the second half of the book, you broaden the discussion out a lot more into how capitalism needs to respond to not just economic crisis, but just the day-to-day -day maintenance of an economic infrastructure. And I, I want to move to that as well. But before we do any of that, uh, you know, you and I have had, I've had the pleasure of sharing a few TV studios, and you've got a great career uh, as a TV pundit in the, in the intersection between economics and politics. And as you know, um, that really pushes you into... Uh, you know, sound bites and trying to sum everything up. And here you've done an incredibly detailed amount of work. I mean, you really do lay out your case. Um, whenever you started to write it, were you had had you was the conclusion formed? Did you know what you what you thought about this, or did the evidence that you were picking up inform where you ended up? Yeah, it's a great question. So the the original mandate was. This is a historic economic moment. Find out, you know, why it's historic and what happens. Um, going into that, because of my experience, um, you know, first as a recovering investment banker, then as a small business advocate, and as you mentioned, following the markets, I've always you know, had a lens on what's happening on the small business part of the economy, which is very difficult for a lot of people to understand. I think when people hear small business, they think niche and they think small impact. And they don't realize that if you take, whether it's a spectrum or a pie and you like divide it straight down the middle, about half the GDP and about half the jobs is completely decentralized before COVID, these numbers are before COVID, in the hands of 30.2 million small businesses. And so that really represents this, this free market, this decentralization um, and that you know, wide opportunity. And then you have the other entire half of the economy, again, about half the GDP and half the jobs in the hands of about 10 to 15,000 big businesses. And that is highly concentrated. And so I, like when, when you start to have these discussions, sometimes those things get flipped. I think people feel like there are millions of big businesses. So it, it's trying to get in there and first just kind of make people understand. And so I had this lens going in um, in March when the very first businesses to be shut down were small businesses. It was retails, it was independent gyms, it was restaurants, it was bars. And I said, okay, 
<laughs> this is this is how we're going to play this game. The people who don't have the clout, that's fine. And I wrote an op-ed um, back in March of 2020 and said, well, if, if you want to make sure that we sustain the economy while we're dealing with you know whatever this looks like, here's an easy way to do it. You know, just make sure you pay these small businesses to have their workers stay home and stay on the payrolls. And, you know, it would have cost them maybe a trillion or a trillion and a half dollars. Not to say that that's insignificant, but it's a fraction of the, you know, 6.5, 6.6 trillion dollars that was spent last year. And it would have preserved people staying on the payrolls. They would have been paying it to taxes. So the net effect would have been less. It, it, it would have held everything together and it would have given them two to three months minimum to figure out a mitigation strategy. And so there was a way to, to go about this. And the first thing out of the gate that we saw was that that didn't happen. The small businesses were targeted. Wall Street was propped up. The CARES Act was a disaster. So the small business thesis was always a piece of it, but it wasn't necessarily the focus. And I would actually argue, even though that it's the title of the book, the book really is more about decentralization versus central planning. And small business just happens to be emblematic and happens to be an easy way to have a nonpartisan conversation at a time when everything is so yeah. partisan. I mean, there are very few people that say, bleep you, small businesses. There are some, by the way, I've encountered them on the internet, but most people are pretty sympathetic to the opportunity to kind of create your path. And so I felt like it was a good way to, to demonstrate kind of the bigger thesis. Right. And it just, you know, as, as I cleared everything out, that's kind of where I, I landed. And I actually, by the way, landed at about 160,000 words. And then my editor was like, Carol, nobody's going to read that. We're going to have to get it under 90,000. And I said, fine. <laughs> that's a better problem to have. Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, when I was going through the fact checking, because that's the other thing on the book. Everything is sourced in this book, like everything, like from major outlets. So when I was going through the fact checking on the like, you know, <laughs> hundreds of sources in there, at that point, I was like, oh, man, I'm really glad we cut this down by like 50% because, you know, if I had to do this for another few days, my eyes would have fallen out of my head. <laughs> yeah, we're both familiar with that dynamic where by the time this baby is getting close to publication, you just don't want to see another page of text. But, you but, it, but I will tell you, it's so much different than my last book, because my last book was very opinion and story driven. And sure, there were a few, you know, citations and sources about things, but it wasn't, hey, here's like news that's happening in the world. And here's like deep economic statistics. Right. So there were it, you know, a lot of it was just more of like, what did I think of the world? And this was, here's what's happening. And then let me create the tie in between. So it was a much more difficult writing process. Um, it, and I'm somebody who writes very quickly and enjoys writing. And this one was much more of a bear than the first one. Uh, well, it, 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 um, it lays out a pretty devastating case in, in the first half of the book, as we discussed. And, um, I wanted to just uh, uh, hone in on a couple of aspects of a few of the things that you said. Um, you know, I, I, as you know very well, and as um, uh, many of the listeners know, you can tell by my accident, I, I grew up in the UK, uh, which was for a long time a part of Europe, 
Uh, I still have a British passport. I still have an Irish passport. I've got my U.S. citizenship and, and proudly carry my U.S. passport. But, you know, I am in European terms right of center, which makes me over here essentially a Marxist communist. Right. <laughs> so bearing that in mind uh, that uh, I, I have that sort of European rightist mindset. Um, I get it when you talk. Uh, so you, you share, for example, the stories of like Floyd Mather, Merriweather. Uh, was it Puff Daddy? Uh, Kanye West got. Kanye West. Got Floyd Mayweather, Tom and Brady. <laughs> we all saw the horrible, you know, the Ruth's Chris stuff. And they at least were shamed into giving it all back. And we could all see. There's a bunch of massive um, discrepancies. This is probably the you know a, a easy way to put it. Just a bunch of horrible stuff. But I know many, many, many people who wouldn't have made it, but for a PPP check, just wouldn't have made it, uh, and were very grateful for it, and frustrated perhaps at some of the things that they read and saw, but still. It got them through. Did you see, did you hear from or see any positivity in that whole process or was CARES, as far as you're concerned, just a complete disaster? So it's one of those things. It's kind of like if somebody comes and burns your house down and then they start a GoFundMe campaign for you and it raises some money, like, do you thank them for the GoFundMe campaign. I mean, that, this is basically the conversation. And unfortunately, that's the, the sort of the gaslighting that, that's happened to people, you know, uh, as opposed to the UK, the, you know, one of the reasons why the United States has been great and has been such a bastion for entrepreneurship is because they hold up individual rights and property rights. And there is a concept in the constitution called eminent domain, which is if you take somebody's property for the public good as the government, you have to give them appropriate compensation for that. So the fact is that they took these small businesses properties. And again, they didn't take Walmart, they didn't take Target, they didn't take the liquor store, they didn't take the weed dispensary, which by the way, had been illegal two years ago, right? Uh, they didn't have Amazon's warehouse shut down and they put trillions of dollars into the stock market. So if, if you had had all of those shut down, we all can hypothesize that this probably would have lasted two weeks and the guys would have said, forget it, we're not doing this anymore. It would have reversed. But because these small guys didn't have the clout, you know, they shut them down for, you know, in some cases, like in, in part, at least <laughs> like over a year. Right. Right. So they were owed due compensation. So at that point to get something to save you, it's not like a thank you. It's like you were owed that and you probably didn't get the full amount that you were owed. And there were a lot of small businesses that didn't get, you know, any or got like a handful of dollars. Um, some that just didn't trust the process and trust the government that they were going to get paid back because of the way it was structured. There are small businesses, as we know, that used independent contractors that weren't eligible and all kinds of things. So, you know, it, it, it did some small businesses get saved by the small amount that was given to PPP? Yes, but that's not the point. The larger point is they burned your house down. So they got to pay you to rebuild it and maybe get in there and help and put in a nice like new refrigerator or something. And I think that's where it gets lost because, oh, well, you know, they got PPP and they were saved. 
the amount, as I said, that they got in multiple tranches of PPP. I mean, the first part was, as you noted, gone in, in 13 to 14 days. They did do the right thing by extending that. But it, it was a fraction of the overall dollars that were spent, and it was a fraction of the amount that was needed to sustain what was done by mandate. And I will contrast this to like, if you think about the Great Recession, and you think about the banks, and you think about um, these sort of extra risks that they took on, they took on too much risk. And it had consequences, you know, not just for the US economy, but really for the, the whole economy, based on their own actions. And they were told they were too big to fail. They got all kinds of money, which, you know, they didn't have to go somewhere and fill out an application for it, which is just like delivered to them. And here you had the opposite situation where the small businesses of no fault of their own were told that they couldn't work, yet they were told they were too small to matter or too hard to control or whatever you want to say by the lack of, of you know, money that they got. And again, small business and big business, they're both half of the economy, but because there's so many more in one half, they just weren't treated the same way. Right. At the Kennedy Center got $25 million. All these other big places got money that they didn't have to jump through the hoops to even get. So yes, you know, there are I, small businesses around, but we have to, to understand that like, that's not the, that's the thing that they want you to take away from it. And that's not the thing that you need to take away from it. Okay. So there are two things that I want to come back to the not needing to jump through hoops, but because yes. you talk uh, uh, very eloquently about the crony table, which I find fascinating. I want to come back and have you share with the listeners your view on the crony table. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about is the they that you just talked about. And I, I want to just um, hone in on that a little bit. But before we do, I want to ask you something that actually you don't mention in the book, but just genuinely out of uh, personal interest. So you talk about, uh, so uh, for example, the story of, uh, was it Shelley Luther was the woman who opened her um, hair, salon. hair salon, ended yeah. up in jail for a few days. And um, you have a great line in the book, uh, and I'm paraphrasing this, and I shouldn't paraphrase a great line, I should read exactly what you said. <laughs> but essentially, Shelley Luther was put in prison, full stop, in America, full stop, in 2020, full stop. Now, there there is a perspective that's, I think a valid one to be held that, and I don't want to personify uh, Ms. Luther, but uh, people who were uh, put in prison or fined or whatever, were fined not for going to work, but for being a public health risk at an incredibly dangerous time. And I just uh, wondered, I know it's not the ambit of the book, but just as a person, you're not, you're one of the reasons that we love each other so much is that you've got great uh, opinions and you don't hold back on them. What's your view on the role of government in keeping uh, its uh, not just workplace, but it, people in general healthy? What, what's valid for them to to do so, and, or not to do? So let me ask you this question before I answer. It. Oh, no, you're not going to do the turn the table thing, are no, you? No, it's just, it's just <laughs> I think it gives the context is what do you think sure. government does well in not the United States? Much. Not very much. I mean, I'm not in disagreement with you in that okay. regard. So, so if we say that, that the people that we've hired to, to quote unquote, protect us, um, you know, we're, we're not hiring them because they filled out, you know, a questionnaire and taken a test and they excel in these areas. 
Um, we have not hired them through a rigorous process to get the best people. I feel like regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, maybe you like somebody on your side of the aisle, but like overall would agree like the House of Representatives is a clown show and the Senate is like, you know, maybe like the sister to a clown show, whatever that is. The grad, the graduate, the master clowns of America. We're, I don't know. Retiring grand clowns, right? So there's this thought process that we need someone to keep us safe versus us taking response, personal responsibility for doing so. And I go right. back to the mask discussion that is in the book where people were out buying masks and doing the right thing. And a lot of people can't remember this because we flip-flopped so many times, but we were told by the higher ups, by Fauci, by the head of health and human services, by all different kinds of people, don't buy masks. They're bad for you. They're going to hurt you. And I'm not exaggerating. I, I have these things sourced in the book from major news outlets and from their own mouths. And the science on that, by the way, hasn't changed. We have Dr. Fauci on tape in a interview with a major news outlet saying, yes, we said this because we thought that the American people were going to go out and buy up all the masks and we wouldn't have them for the healthcare providers. But then they changed their mind in April and they told them the same thing. They could have just told all of us, hey, we're worried about this. Here's how to make a cloth mask at home or here's how to get a paper mask. Don't get the N95s. But they chose to be intentionally deceitful. And there are many of those discussions just on, on the health decisions um, later in the book, we talk about when they did reopen restaurants, like in New York, if you were a bar, you had to serve food and chips weren't enough. You had to serve a dip with a chip. So the dip is now the protecting you from COVID apparently and their curfews. So <laughs> the role that they played was not a role. I feel like if they would have empowered us individually, and by the way, shared the science and data, which was the vulnerable population, which we all knew by the beginning of March, um, is the elderly. Yet they, you know, in certain places, they sent those elderly who had COVID into nursing homes. Again, these are the people who are, are charged with the decision making. Um, you know, if we if we like took charge of that personally and we're empowered to do so instead of outsourcing this to a bunch of morons, I feel like we would have been in a better health place. And I feel like people should have that information and be able to make those risks. If you knew you're vulnerable, like, yes, you should definitely stay home. And we should have focused our resources on making sure those people who had comorbidities and, and, and follow the data and the science. But they didn't do that at all. So there, there's no sort of history to show that government has a good role in protecting us health. I think they did a really crappy job. No, I don't, I don't and do I don't, and by the way, this isn't by party party. Like, I don't feel like if we had a different slate of people in there, because we've seen this now under two administrations, we're doing a lot of the same kinds of things. Um, the, the fact that we are trying to outsource our common sense to a group that is politicized is not, I think, toothy public health benefit. But again, even if you think that it was, we didn't have full lockdowns and we didn't have full liberty. So like both of those options were on the table. They did this like mashup that didn't get to either of those ends. And you mentioned, uh, you know, a, a, a couple of 
different things on the way through there. Um, and I, and I'll, I'll, I just want to get your view on the, sep- the possible separation of them. Or are they the same thing? So you talked about uh, deceit and you've talked about morons. And I guess the, my <laughs> shorthand here is I absolutely get, and your book only, and I don't mean that in a demeaning sense, but all it did was, was, was make me feel, well, Carol's done the work to prove what I felt intuitively, which is just, there's just been such an enormous amount of incompetence in the handling of so many aspects of dealing with this pandemic. Um, not everything, but a lot. Um, and there's a sense, certainly in the uh, cover title and subtitle, and then in a few of the comments that you make, you almost say that you feel it's a conspiracy, but don't quite get there. And I don't get in, I get all of the incompetence, just abounding. But do you feel that this was uh, thought through, like, you know, bizarro world Illuminati trying to do something horrible to small business? Or was it just a complete screw up by a bunch of people who don't know how small business works? So I I think it's probably somewhere in the middle of that. Do I think there is a special counsel (laughs) that gets together against small business? No. Do I think that small business is inconvenient to politicians who are looking to consolidate power and big business special interests and politicians who are all in the club together? Um, Whether, again, it's they're too small to matter, too hard to control find them inconvenient. So whether it is um, inconvenience intentionally or inconvenience by like, it just doesn't matter or heck, we just need to do something. So let's just take this small guy and, you know, I don't care, whatever, you know, he'll open a pizza parlor somewhere else and we'll make Uh, sure our big guys are taken care of. Like, again, it doesn't really matter. It's it's, it's, the intention doesn't matter. The outcome is always going to be the same. And as I said, I feel like it's, it, there is definitely a, you know, here's our cabal of power. And, you know, if you're a politician who's looking to consolidate power, you want fewer businesses. You want the ones that you know, have the lobbying dollars and that can contribute to your coffers. Having decentralization stands in the way of you spending more money, passing more laws, getting more power. I mean, it, those two things are completely at odds. I had somebody say to me that small business is the natural enemy of the government, right? right? Because you know, we, we, there's a, a story in the book from all the way back of FDR, where he had this small business meeting and he wanted to come get the small businesses to buy in and they couldn't because they were just too independent. They were all over the place and nobody could come to, you know, one view. And that's very inconvenient for politicians, which it's great for freedom and choice and transparency. Um, So, you know, that's just the natural order of freedom, choice and transparency on one end versus a handful of people making decisions often using force, coercion, control, and opacity. And that's, I think, again, the thing we're, we're thinking. So when you say, it's, is it a conspiracy? It's not like a Mr. Burns, like, ooh, excellent, like, he, 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 we're going to all get together and we're evil. It's a conspiracy in that, like, we just aren't useful 
and the, the more of them there are, the less power there is on the side that is useful. And that's the, the, the battle. So I think it's a different way to uh, think about, you know, the, the struggle there. And it, 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 the, the point of which those two overlap, you know, the incompetence and yeah. the conspiracy theory, uh, I believe, uh, indubitably, is in the is in the who you know world the crony side of things yeah and you, you have a whole chapter uh devoted to the crony table so tell us a little bit about what the crony table is and what you discovered about it yeah so cronyism um which often gets conflated with capitalism is really when the government tilts the playing field away from that freedom and choice and gives you know, a sort of a special advantage to a group of people um, those tend to be people that are well-connected, wealthy or big. It never seems to be like it's the little guy, even though that's always the guys that it is um, sold under. And again, the natural order of things, If you know, th this is all really a study in human nature. I mean, we talk about economics and we talk about politics, but just this is human nature. The reality is people seek power, people are greedy, people do things for their friends. That's just sort of the natural order of things. So I don't believe in unicorns. So it's a question of, of how do you create a system or a non-system that minimizes that um, you know, for the most people and, and kind of takes away that power. And it's really fascinating um, whether it is, you know, the, the laws that are passed or some of the special tax advantages or, you know, kind of anything that's done, like how does that impact the small guy versus the little guy? If you talk to small businesses all across the country, they'll tell you that, you know, dealing with administrative paperwork, dealing with laws, you know, regulations, permitting, you know, those are the kinds of things that keep them from being able to grow their business and eat up their time in a non-revenue producing fashion. And uh, we did some work on this many years ago, it was like 40% of the average small business owner's time was, was spent on like non-revenue generating BS. So obviously like that, that's not intended to make you more productive. Uh, if you're a big company, you have more money, more access to capital, which why, by the way, the government enables. And you know, you're able to navigate that more easily. The one that really stood out to me, um, you know, as I was doing my research, because it's one of those things like I knew about, but I didn't actually know the numbers and the aftermath was the Great Recession and the banks, as we alluded to earlier. Uh -huh. So we said the banks, you know, took on this outside risk and they were going to get some kind of punishment after they got their reward of the taxpayer bailout. And that came in terms of legislation, Dodd-Frank. Great, you think, we're gonna rein in the big banks. That's a good thing, right? That's good for everybody. So what ended up happening, it was so onerous to comply with that it ended up killing the formation of small and community banks. It put a bunch of small business banks out of business. And if you've ever tried to get a loan before, you know that the best place for a small business to get a loan is from a small business bank because they have less capital to deploy and they're able to do smaller chunks. The big guys, it just doesn't register for them. So it ended up killing small business lending as well. That just went down. I think it, they said it went down like 80%. It was insane. At the same time, the big businesses now had less competition and they had more capital being pumped in from the Federal Reserve. 
and big business lending and their business went through the roof. So you have this legislation that is meant to punish, meant to rein in the big banks that gave them free reign. And so those are the things that happen every single time because of the structure of who's writing the laws, who's on the inside, who has the lobbying dollars. So anytime you have a a problem that's enabled by government, having more government in there actually makes the problem worse versus just letting the market sort it out. And so again, these are the kinds of things that good intentions don't produce good outcomes. And I feel like we're in a point in our history where we're spending too much time talking about intentions versus outcomes. As you know, you are the the business operations master, and this is all about outcomes and bottom lines and what processes do you put in place to ensure that to happen. And the government (laughs) is at the point of diseconomies of scale um, and, you know, can't do anything well, let alone one thing. And we're asking it to be involved in all these different aspects of our lives. And at the end of the day, it's to the detriment of our economic freedom. And um, I want to I want to move to that. Where, where, are we, where should we be heading and, and uh, uh, cover the ground that you cover uh, extensively in the second half of your book? But one final um, sort of resting point on what's been going on before we do that. Um, you, you make it pretty clear in the book that you're not a great fan of Jerome Paul's FD, uh, uh, yeah. Fed, uh, the Fed in general. Uh, just share a little bit of, of your thoughts about that. You, you make a fascinating point, which I didn't know. Uh, you point out that the financing model that the Fed has actually means that it's not independent. And I'd love you to just uh, sh- share a little bit more about that. So I have a whole chapter in the Fed, on the Fed, and it's one of, of everybody's favorite two chapters, the Fed in China. Everybody's my favorite two chapters. It's everybody's. And I think the reason people like the Fed chapter and why I felt so strongly about devoting an entire chapter is that, A, it's the source of many of our problems and much of the unequal playing field. B, it's so wonky and hard to understand the way that people talk about it. And because of the way that it's designed, frankly, because it's designed for confusion, that most people have like kind of heard about it, but they have no idea what it actually is, what it does, or the impact that it's having on their lives. So you have this like weird... scenario where it's this you know group of, of banks that then has a, a board of governors and a reserve bank and it gets its authority from congressional mandate but then it gives its profits if it makes any and it gets profits by um, if it's holding securities on its balance sheet and it you know, making any interest or anything on that it gives it back to the treasury <laughs> so it's like you have this like weird hybrid where it's like wink wink nudge nudge oh yeah we're independent but they're being driven in a sense by the banking interests as well as congress and, and the government and it's enabled you know this, this insane change and an insane transfer of wealth. So, you know, as I mentioned, this was historic. There were two things that happened during 2020 and continuing this year. One is that when they shut down the small businesses, if you had dollars to spend, you were going to go spend them at Target or Walmart or Amazon, the places that were open and could accept that money. And so they had 
record quarters. I mean, it was like insane in terms of the amount of revenue that they generated while hundreds of thousands of small businesses were murdered and millions more were struggling to survive. Like they were hitting records. So I think that part is very easy for people to understand. The hard part to understand is that the tools, put that in air quotes, um, that the Federal Reserve uses in terms of artificially depressing interest rates and then going in buying securities in the market and putting it on their balance sheet, what that does in effect is it disrupts risk. It means if you are a saver or a retiree that you put your money away in the bank and you're earning nothing on it. So if you want to be able to keep up with the cost of living or to you know live your life the way that you had expected, you have to take on more risk to get the same return that you would under normal circumstances if the Fed wasn't doing that. Right. The same banks then take this money, which basically is almost free <laughs> at this point, right? They're not, not putting it out at very high interest rates and they're giving it to the big companies and they're able to use that to then go and compete with you as a small business owner. And because of this disruption of risk in the market and the amount of money that's flowing in, the valuations of the companies expand. So we had seven tech companies that gained $3.4 trillion in value in 2020. We had a record year for IPOs. We had a record value in terms of the amount raised by SPACs, which are these highly speculative investment vehicles. So if you were big and you can access capital and you had this like, you know, kind of off balance sheet, like weird uh, organization, you know, mafia <laughs> behind you, like you were doing really well. At the same time, the rest of us, you know, that were shut down, were struggling uh, that you know that that these businesses were going out of business. That people were were really just doing everything they could to cut their salaries to make sure they saved their businesses. Like the 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 imbalance of that is horrendous. And then the worst part about the whole thing is then people blame it on capitalism and say, oh, well, that happens in capitalism. Well, the Federal Reserve putting more than eight trillion dollars on their balance sheet and holding interest rates artificially low isn't capitalism, that's central planning. And that goes back to the government interference and in tilting the playing field away from us and transferring it, these wealth opportunities. And to take that like one step back, you know, it's harder for you now to be successful in terms of owning a small business, which is a wealth creation opportunity. You have to take on more risk to be successful in the market. That's a wealth creation opportunity. They have given so much money to these big firms and made it so hard for them to find a return on investment anywhere because of what they've done in the market that they are now competing with you to buy a house. So if you're going out and trying to buy a house, you now have pension funds and private equity firms that are out there competing with you. That's a wealth creation opportunity. So you have the government interfering and making it harder for you as the average American to create wealth, and then you hear about the inequality of capitalism. That's the inequality of central planning. And uh, so I think it's important for people who want to right that ship to understand the fundamentals of these things so that we can have the appropriate discussion. Because I guarantee you, nobody who's listening here has called their representative and said, representative, I need you to rein in the Fed. But honestly, like that's one of the first things everybody should be doing. And it's not part of our discourse because it's intentionally designed 
to make you confused. You, you I think, summarize it really well in a wonderful sentence. Uh, you say, there are no varieties of capitalism. Right. right. It's capitalism. And what you point out is the degree to which, you know, I'm not going to say we've been hoodwinked or whatever, but we, a lot of us have come to accept central planning as an integral part uh, when it doesn't need to be. So apart from, let's move to, you know, the, the, the whole of the second half of the book, you have a wonderful tour d'horizon of, of capitalism in its pomp, if I can put it that way, what it looks and feels like when it's doing the right thing. Apart from calling our representative and telling them to shut down the Fed, <laughs> how do we get from here to there? What are the practical steps in trying to take what is an enormous lumbering bureaucracy and turning it into effective government in your view? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's getting rid of as much of it as possible. Um, and it's, I think if you ask most small business owners what they want more than anything, it's just to be left alone, right? That, that, that they, don't, they don't need any help. They just don't need the barriers that make it difficult. Um, or if they do want help, it's, well, you gave this help to this big guy, so we just would like for it to be, to be even. And that's the problem is that we're, we're continually told, oh, we need more spending in this area, or we need more purview, or we need more rules, or we need more laws, you know, right as we're recording this uh, between the PRO Act increasing the minimum wage, and now there's a framework for a three and a half trillion dollar budget that expands the government's touch points in lots of areas and expands um, things that look a lot like universal basic income under different names and look like laying the foundation for Medicare for all and you know all these these issues. And I think that a lot of us agree on the same issues. Like we agree that healthcare is a mess. You know, we agree that the education system is not working, but too many people want to throw more government in to solve the problems that have been created by the government. And so the, the, what people should be doing is standing up and just saying nothing. Like we complain when government, we don't think government's doing anything like that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing. We need them to do less and we actually need them to take back and repeal being the middleman. And I just kind of go back to the concept of all these people that talk about monopolies or, you know, uh, you know, middleman and like how that those, you know, those aren't necessary. Well, the biggest monopoly we have is the U S government. The biggest duopoly is the two party system. And the biggest middleman is Congress. <laughs> like they're in the middle of everything. So if you really believe in those tenets, like, like let's apply them across the board. And yeah, I mean, this is not, an easy thing to do. So, you know, what you can do, you can vote with your dollars, you can support small businesses, which is an important thing to do, because we have too many people who would just reflexively go and give their dollars to big companies. And again, nothing wrong if you get value from them, I'm capitalist. But again, in terms of that power dynamic, you need to be more thoughtful about your role in terms of that. Um, and then in terms of you know, being supportive of policies that continue to you know, feed the monster, 
um, you know, just maybe think about like, is there a different way? Is there a better way? And is our is freedom and choice and us all making our own decisions going to lead to a better outcome and more transparency than a handful of people who don't have expertise uh, making the decisions and then forcing or controlling or coercing everybody to follow along? Well, sadly, um, I mean, I agree with so much of what you just said. And sadly, history shows that in its nature, government expands to absorb the revenue available. That's just what happens. You know, you start somewhere and once you put that piece of yeast in and you have your first governing organization, it will expand so long as there's revenue it can absorb. And and turning that around is, is going to be a, a pretty tough thing to do. Uh, one thing that you did talk about at the start, and then we'll finish with a few quick fire questions, um, was just the, the level of competence in the people that we've hired to do this or, or who have been hired to do this. You know, you made the point, unlike, say, Singapore, which for many decades really had a high quality hiring model for their civil servants above everybody else because they wanted the best to come work there. We don't have that here. That's presumed, I mean, presumably there's no point shrinking government down if it's still full of dunderheads. Um, hasn't the, 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 recruit, the whole recruitment process, how we get people into government got to change? I mean, yeah, I love it, but I'll, I'll, I'll dispute a little bit of the first point because one of my favorite books um, which is actually, I wrote my first book to be sort of the prequel to is The E-Myth Revisited. Every small business owner who focuses on systems um, right. loves some Michael E. Gerber, right? And the thesis of that book, which I feel like we all agree, is that the best design systems allow you know, the unskilled and those, you know, who aren't the smartest people in the room to run them. The reason why McDonald's has gotten so big and is still able to be effective is because it can hire somebody off the street and it works. So I I would contend that if you require a system with the smartest people to be able to have it function, it's probably not a great system, which is why I believe in the non-system or the unsystem of capitalism and free choice. That being said is, yeah, I would like to see a lot shifted in terms of the way that we, um, you know, get people you know, into office. Um, part of the things that I had put out there and, and was cut out <laughs> in the book were some suggestions uh, perhaps around this. But, you know, I do think that the two party system needs to be broken up. I think that, you know, if you don't believe in the, the tenants that, you know, control and centralized power, um, you know, equals freedom, which it doesn't, there's just too much in, in only having two parties come to the table and just, you know, chopping that up would certainly be helpful. Um, but like, you know, it would be, if we're going to have people like, you know, stewarding $8 trillion at the federal, state and local levels, like, wouldn't you want somebody who knows the difference between a balance sheet and a cash flow statement and, you know, an income statement or understands what the Federal Reserve does. I I remember a couple of years ago here in the state of Illinois that we had a um, crazy increase in our taxes. It was going from, you know, three something to, you know, four or whatever. And it was like a 75% increase. And (laughs) 
<laughs> we had this member of Congress or a member of the Illinois uh, Congress, whatever you want to call it, who said he was like, it's 1%. It's not 75%. You're lying. And he didn't understand the difference between a percentage point and a percentage increase. It was going all over social media. And so, of course, me, I'm not going to not jump on that. So I went and said, like, these are the people who are in charge of your money and made a complete fool. And he retracted it, but then doubled down on it and still looked like a complete idiot. But like, there are a lot of people who are making these decisions that really like fundamentally don't understand the difference between a percentage point and a percentage increase. And so, yeah, I mean, it would be, I mean, it would be great to do the whole thing blind, right? Like, wouldn't it be good if you didn't know who the people were, or what they were affiliated with, but you just knew their principles and like their test scores and stuff. I, I mean, I just feel like us demanding that we have, and honestly, like, it may be paying people more, like making these like more attractive jobs. That's something that Anthony Scaramucci has, you know, suggested that if you really want to get somebody who's competitive, like make it a choice to do this or to go work for, for Google. But then of course, then you're going to have the people say, oh, well, you know, you're making so much money. At, like there's no win. This should honestly, it should be a, what it was intended to be. It should be a part-time job where you're representing the state's interest, all of the stuff that we've outsourced to the federal government should be going back to the states. I mean, we honestly probably just need a convention of the states, but you need to get the states um, <laughs> in, in like, you know, a frame of mind where you've got some decent people in there in order for that to make sense. But, you know, that would probably be a good thing. I mean, why do you, you know, why do we pay money to the federal government that like it sits around and plays reindeer games and then gives back to the states. Like why, like why is that? Like even social security, this, this wasn't in the book either, but I'm sure since you referenced Singapore that you've heard of Provident funds before, um, you know, there's like, why do you need the government to be a middleman? Like why wouldn't you just pay into social security and it, even if it's a government requirement, you actually own that money and then you can invest it to get a return, assuming that the Fed wasn't messing with the market, instead of the government going out, spending it, and then having an IOU on future people in order to be able to do it. I mean, there, there's so many things, so many ways you could bring capitalistic tenants and take the government out of the equation and limit their power as a middleman. Um, but unfortunately, people keep trying to push them in the opposite direction. So, uh, One small point that came up in uh, what you just shared that I don't want the listeners to miss out on is, um, folks, if you do want to see Twitter snark done correctly, <laughs> just find Google. I find uh, Carol. She's not hard to find. Just Google her name. And uh, if you want to see the just, you know, the epitome of that, uh, Google a little further uh, and have Carol Roth. And you know who I'm going to say, Carol. I Andrew, do. Piers Morgan. And I'll say no more. It's worth finding that exchange. I, I, by, by the way, that still goes viral on a regular basis. And I I'm still sure. have people, you know, we're, we're now 12 years. Into, <laughs> no, nine, nine years, nine years into it. And it's still, people are still finding it. And, Every time it still makes me laugh. So. 
<laughs> Me too. And it's worse, folks, going and finding it. Okay, let, let's finish with a couple of uh, quick round questions. And, okay. and you've already touched on one of them. States' rights, what did, what, what did this, the work and the research that you did here, what were your thoughts about how the states handled the pandemic versus the, the feds, the federal government? So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people forget the federal government under Trump is the one who came up with the inane 15 days to slow the spread and gave that blueprint to the states who ran with it and used it cover to become 500 days to slow the spread. So I actually thought it was very appropriate that they left it up to the states. Um, I think that, again, given our geography, the number of people, the scale that we have, that it's impossible to have one size fits all plan. Um, that being said, that a lot of states didn't do a very good job with it either. I had a tournament of the worst states uh, governors for small business, and it was very hard. We had a bracket. It, it started with a sweet 16, I think, and it was very hard. There were a lot of people who were left off that deserved to be on there. Um, and by the way, uh, Gavin Newsom happened to win the whole thing, uh, slowly edging out Andrew Cuomo. Uh, but, uh, you know, there were a lot of states that really didn't do a great job. And the interesting thing about it is if you go back and you look at the data in terms of death outcomes, you know, that the ones that had the heavy hand didn't have better COVID outcomes because the because of the way that they put it out. They weren't targeting the vulnerable populations. They were doing this, you know, we're connected, not connected, small business, big, whatever. And so while economically there was some variance, there was definitely not um, in terms of the, the healthcare outcomes, which I think, you know, kind of speaks to the some of the things we were talking about earlier. Which uh, uh, probably I think is going to lead to the answers to my next question, which is uh, who uh, across the, the whole panorama of actors who, who do you who did come out well who who do you admire for how they approached the pandemic economically you know i again i i'm not one of those like i don't admire people i just kind of like principles and i don't like parties and i <laughs> let's feel put like it, let's put it this way who would have been on the other end of the of the twitter well, I'll, I'll just i'll lump them all together because then somebody's gonna be like oh i don't like this person like just from a principle standpoint I, as i said i feel like those who let um, people make more of their own choices, who were on the side of freedom, who didn't do sort of indiscriminate lockdowns. I feel like, you know, those people who were more transparent with the data um, did better and had no worse, and in some cases, better outcomes. Obviously, part of that has to do with, you know, geographies. If you were in a big city, you know, you're going to geographically, you had a lot of older people, that's going to skew the numbers too. So we have to, you know, right. think about that. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, there are definitely some states and there were also some smaller states that did a horrible job. I mean, New Mexico was one of the worst. <laughs> and you would think that that would be a state that maybe would be, um, you know, a, a little bit, you know, because it's more spread out and it's not as populated whatnot. And, disaster there so you know as i feel like those that erred um on the side of trying to follow at least some semblance of data empowering people to make decisions being super clear about the data and not trying to pick winners and losers um i think that those had the the better outcomes and finally what what would your approach be or what would you suggest uh an approach would be to the current hiring issue the fact that we've got 
mounting job vacancies, uh, but I'm in a small town. Local restaurants can't get anybody. Yeah. Everybody's screaming for employees. So this, 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 is, this is long tail outcomes of central planning. Um, and again, we can argue about whether this was intentional or not to get more people conditioned not to go back to work, to be on the government dole, to prime them for UBI. Uh, we now have 10 million job openings in the U.S. I mean, it's historic. And people received stimulus. They received enhanced unemployment benefits. And this is really important because there's a lot of misinformation around this. You know, if you work, your employer, or if you're in one of the five states that has you pay in, pays in on your behalf and you have access to unemployment, which that's fine. Everybody should do that. But what they did starting in March is it started at $600 a week and then it was down to $300 a week is that they gave you an incremental amount on top of it, this enhanced unemployment, this extra benefit. And that made it... You know, really financially, uh, for a lot of people, it, it made it that they didn't want to go back to work because either they were making about the same, or even if it was a bit less, by the time you have gas and you have to commute and all this stuff, it just wasn't worth it. So now you have the government competing with businesses for employees. We go back to what I said from the beginning, if you would have paid people to stay on the payroll, you would have paid them and say, instead of giving it through unemployment, we're going to give it to you as part of this relief, but you have to stay employed. You have to stay committed to that employer and go back to work when they reopen. We would have preserved the businesses. We would have preserved the jobs. People would have still had that loyalty to their jobs, and then they wouldn't have had that disruption. And this heavily falls on the shoulder of small businesses that don't have the access to capital to be able to, to withstand this or the ability to close certain locations and still come out okay. Um, they're contending, you know, first they had the mandated shutdowns, then they had the employment issues. They're having price increases from the inflation that's been caused by this whole supply chain disruption. Um, and then, you know, you get to the point where there's, there's so much demand from consumers. So like you go to the restaurants, they're dealing with all these issues. They've increased their prices. They have no staff. You have a bad experience and now you're not going to want to go back to that restaurant. So it's like, it's just a no win situation. And the important takeaway is that that was not caused by the pandemic. That was caused by the government's reaction to the pandemic. And there are so many different things, as we've discussed some of them, that they could have done if their intention was not to cause chaos and or that they had anybody competent leading the charge and it was done the way a business person would do this versus the way a politician would do this that would have produced an entirely different outcome that wouldn't have been so devastating for the people who are the most vulnerable. Well, folks, if the last... X number of years, particularly here in the U.S., has led you to believe that it's impossible anymore to be both passionate and eloquent and gracious, <laughs> then there's much more of what you just said in this fantastic book, The War on Small Business. My dear friend, Carol Roth, my best ultra-capitalist friend, thank you so much for coming back and sharing with us. Thanks, Les. And if I can just make one more plug, um, since we're talking about this, if you want to buy the book, and I hope you do because it's an important education, buy it from your local bookstore. Go to bookshop.org and they will fulfill it locally because for us to have this conversation and then just go the easy route to one of the biggest names, um, you know, 
again, if that's what you want, I'm a capitalist, please still buy it, but be thoughtful because this is like the first step into being thoughtful about how you put your dollars and you participate in capitalism. But thank you for being a warrior for businesses and uh, hopefully we can, we can save some more together. <laughs> well, I look forward to welcoming you back for, for episode four. Thanks, Carol. Thank you.